and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, re- speaking to you from Ottawa, Canada. Uh, longtime listeners of our show know that each week we try and unpack the reading of the Torah that is being offered in synagogues throughout the world. The Torah is read on a yearly cycle, and we have just begun our uh, reading of the book of Bereshit, the reading of Genesis. This week, we are, as a community throughout the Jewish world, uh, reading from Genesis 6-9 through Genesis uh, 11-32. The parasha is known as Noah, or in English, Noah, and it contains stories that are well known to you, the listener. Let me give you an overview of the parasha and then introduce our guest. As always, we will not be able to discuss the entirety of the parasha, and we will focus on some of the seminal uh, questions that are raised by the Torah portion. In this week's Torah portion, we read that God instructs Noah the only righteous man in his generation in a world consumed by violence and corruption, to build a large wooden teva, which is usually translated as an ark, coated within and without with pitch. A great deluge, says God, will wipe out all life from the face of the earth, but the ark will float upon the water, sheltering Noah and his family, and two members male and female, of each animal species, and seven of what the Torah calls the pure species. We now come to the story that most of you know. Rain falls for 40 days and nights, and the waters churn for 150 days more before calming and beginning to recede. The ark settles on what is known as Mount Ararat, And Noah dispatches a raven and then a series of doves to see if the waters were abated from the face of the earth. When the ground dries completely, exactly one solar year after the onset of the flood, God commands Noah to exit the Teva and repopulate the earth. Upon exiting, Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifice to God. God swears never again to destroy all of mankind because of their deeds and sets a rainbow in the sky as a guarantor of his new covenant with humanity. God also commands Noah regarding the sacredness of life. Murder is now deemed for the first time in the biblical text as a capital offense. And while human beings are permitted to eat meat of animals, they are forbidden to eat flesh or blood taken from living animals. Noah plants a vineyard and eventually uh, becomes drunk on its produce. Two of Noah's sons, Shem and Jepheth, are blessed for covering up their father's nakedness while his third son, Ham, is punished for taking advantage of his father's uh, drunken presentation. Our story shifts now to the concluding epic of the parasha. The descendants of Noah remain a single people 
with a single language and culture for what the Torah calls 10 generations. Then they defy their creator by building a great tower to symbolize their own invincibility, perhaps. God confuses their language so that one does not comprehend the tongue of the other, causing them to abandon their project. And God, according to Jewish tradition, disperses them across the face of the earth, splitting what had originally been one people into 70 nations. The Torah portion concludes with the chronology of 10 generations from Noah to Avram. Later, Avram's name will be changed to Avraham. And the latter's journey from his birthplace of Ur of Chazdim to Haran on the way to the land of Canaan. Now at the end of uh, chapter 11, verse 32, we end the primordial story. And next week, we will begin the story of the people of Israel through the life of Avraham. But we're not there yet. So we will have to go back, uh, as one would expect, and try and probe this week's Torah portion. With me this morning is no stranger to our show, Rabbi Sai Stanway, Rabbi of Temple Beth Miriam in Elberon, New Jersey, since 1998. Previously, he served congregations in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, La Cruz's New Mexico, and as I've already indicated, has been in New Jersey since 1998. In addition to leading uh, this congregation, by the way, parenthetically, it is the only congregation in North America with a woman's name in its name. Uh, Rabbi Stanway is active in the general community and the extended Jewish community. He is an amateur radio operator and hosts his own podcast. Rabbi Stanway, welcome again to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I am delighted to be here with you. Well, um, in the circumstances that surround us in the world, it is a pleasure to speak to you about something as um, seemingly mundane as Torah. Um, but our Torah portion, uh, interestingly enough, doesn't give us much of a break from current events inasmuch as it begins by telling us, as I mentioned in the introduction, that the world has devolved into a world consumed by violence and corruption, and that God chooses one man by the name of Noah, who is identified as a righteous man in his generation. So let's begin by asking um, ourselves, what does it mean to be a righteous man in your generation? So before we do that, <laughs> can I point something out? Of course, uh, as one would expect from a rabbi to answer a question. With a I, I will answer the question with a question. But actually, the Torah says that the, that the land was filled with violence and corruption. And the Hebrew word, for violence and corruption is Hamas. It's the same word as the terrorist organization that attacked Israel. That word is a very, very old Hebrew word, 
and has no connection to the uh, uh, the, the acronym Hamas. Uh, but it's a it's an interesting historical situation, and it's an interesting connection that we have with the events of today and the Torah portion. So, uh, as, as um, readers of mysteries know, um, there is never a mystery in which the detective or the police uh, don't say there's no uh, such thing as coincidences. That's correct. That's and correct. it's uh, far too often we have a confluence between the Torah portion and current events. And even if there isn't one, we'll find one. <laughs> exactly. But thank you for pointing that out and also indicating that the word Hamas is an, an, is an acronym. It's not in and of itself a singular word. Correct. Um, but the pronunciation would be the same as it is in this week's uh, Torah portion from Genesis, uh, indicating corrupt and violent. Corrupt and violence. And then you ask the question, what does it mean to be a good man in that generation? Because that's what the Hebrew says. Ishayab. Ish Sadiq right. Right. So the right. distinction that we're trying to make for the listeners is, um, the Torah doesn't say that he was an Ish Sadiq, that he was a righteous man. It simply suggests that he was the righteous man in that generation. Right. Now, what you're doing there, which many people uh, may not get, is you're actually quoting a rabbinic uh, commentary, okay, that is cited by Rashi. A medieval commentator, but a, a, a but it's a midrash. It's an explanation. So the question is, for me, why did Rashi and the 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 midrash writers make it a point to say uh, a righteous man in his generation? Because as you properly noted, the very next act in the book of Genesis is the uh, the are the opening acts of. Abraham. And Abraham is called a tzaddik, a righteous person. So in order to create some kind of contrast between Abraham and Noah, they point that they point out that the text says Noah haya ishtamim, that he was a righteous, that he was a pure man. So the question is, what does it mean to be a pure man? Let's just lay it instead of using the word pure, because I think it's it's too laden. The word tom means simple. Uh, maybe salt of the earth. Maybe we could call him a decent guy. So Noah was a decent guy in the midst of all this indecency. And it's interesting to know what that the Torah does not tell us what the Hamas was, what the indecency was. It says it was filled with violence and corruption. I mean, what does that mean? Um, violence, maybe we can get an idea, uh, but we don't know what corruption is. So it was, it was what we could say is bad societal times that it was that, that society and civilization as it existed then was a mess. And here is this guy, Noah, uh, who, uh, whose name means comfort. 
and peace, tranquility. And here's this decent guy in the midst of all of this violence and corruption. He's a decent guy living among scoundrels, for lack of a better term. And it's interesting that you also pointed out that we don't know what that means. How was he decent? And what does it mean to be decent? And th this is, this is, I think, one of those times in Torah where we look at the, where we look at it and, and, and we ask ourselves, what does it mean to be a decent person in the midst of indecency? And that's a really, uh, a, that's a very personal question because it gets to the heart of, of, of how do we, uh, uh, how do we define ourselves as ethical people? And is ethics situational or is it universal? And philosophers have been asking that for a long time. So for instance, way back when, when I lived in Canada, we learned about the Inuit people, uh, who would, uh, who had a tradition. I doubt very much they do these days, but they had a tradition <laughs> of putting the aged and infirmed on an ice floe when they became ill because they, because people did not have the wherewithal, the facilities to take care of these old, of these old people. So they, they would put them on an ice floe and they would send them out into the, uh, into the ocean where, of course, they would perish. So it, it, does this mean that what they did was immoral? Well, it's easy to answer that question if you're an Inuit. <laughs> the answer is no. This is what you have to do in order to stay alive because they didn't have the resources <clears throat> to nurse that person back to health when they were so old and infirmed in 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 a uh in a modern society such as ours we could say oh that that's an immoral thing you're sending grandma out uh, uh out into the ice flow and so that's why i say with the story of noah it really comes down to each and every one of us uh uh where we determine what does it mean to be a good person? And the answer, uh, the answer is always fluid because what might be a good person in, in one situation does not necessarily mean that the person is a, is a good person in another situation. So the, the rabbi struggled with this too. And the, 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 the one of the answers they came up with, uh, is also kind of ambiguous. They said, which means in a place where there are no human beings, strive to be a human being. And in, in that sense, it's not speaking about the phys physical human being. It, it is absolutely. It's talking about the, the, the uh, keeping ourselves rooted ethically and morally. Um, but again, it still leads to exactly the same problem, doesn't it? If, it leads to the problem of what does it mean to be a, a rooted ethical person in every situation? It, it's interesting how um, in these 11 chapters of Torah, God is really probing to find the answer to that. Um, listeners will remember, um, and even if you haven't listened previously, you'll remember 
that um, God is disappointed in Adam and Eve because they violate the only commandment that he gave them, um, which was their uh, surety, their guarantor to stay in the Garden of Eden, Correct. and they violate that. And then in a uh, subsequent episode, we have the story of Cain and Abel, in which Cain um, murders his brother, um, and God is not happy about that, even though there hasn't been a particular commandment uh, prohibiting um, murder. It's almost like when God looks at the world and says, this is, this is getting out of hand, I'm going to destroy it, I'm going to start all over again. It's, it, th- th- there's, there's a palpable feeling of God being disappointed, isn't there? And uh, Elie Wiesel said that the most pathetic character in the Bible, the one that evokes the most pathos, is God. God is always learning, and God is always disappointed with our choices. And yet, God is not disappointed completely, because God chooses Noah. He's God is saying, I still have a belief, if you want to use the word faith, I still have faith that humanity, mankind, pardon the gender specificity, but that humankind can still survive this. And that even though there is all of this violence and corruption, here is a good man who can lead the way. So he didn't start all over again. He didn't destroy the world and start all over again. He destroyed most of the world and started all over again. And then God does something that um, it seems in the context of the Torah that God was reluctant to do. As I indicated, um, Adam and Eve had only one uh, divine commandment to obey. Um, Cain and Abel had no specific commandments to obey. But following the Mabul, the flood, God then uh, makes it a um, commandment not to murder and not to um, eat um, flesh that is still alive. And um, tradition tells us that in addition to that, we have what becomes known as the Noahide laws. The seven laws of Noah. And perhaps you remind the listeners what they are, but in general, they are the laws that we would assume govern civilization. Correct. They, 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 they would be what we consider, with the exception, by the way, of eating the animal, uh, eating flesh of an animal, which is, right. is not necessarily an ethical law. Uh, they, they would be what we would consider natural laws. Good. So now, after all of this chaos, God realizes that it's not enough simply to create humanity and make a supposition that the process of creation imbues humanity with the innate ability to choose right and wrong. There has to be an external source of right and wrong. An external source of right and wrong of authority, which we call Torah, and Torah comes from the Hebrew word yara, which means to shoot, to go straight. Right. 
So, so the Torah is a book of straight shooting. Right. It is the book from which, um, and remember that I'm speaking to the listeners, there's nothing particularistic about the people that the Torah is speaking to now. There's no covenantal relationship between Noah and Noah's descendants and Adonai, as opposed to the covenantal relationship we'll begin to read about in uh, Genesis 12. This is God speaking to humanity and suggesting that the uh, price of being a human being right. and, is and, to and, and, internalize some sort of um, natural law. Right. Some sort of what is right and what is wrong. And when you, when, and, and, and the struggle for civilization has always been to, um, to advance beyond what is basic natural law. Um, you know, so the, the, one of the, one of the glaring omissions in, um, uh, in the Noahide laws are anything dealing with property. So, for instance, you know, what happens uh, uh, if, you know, your neighbor's cow wanders onto your yard? Whose responsibility is it if he does damages? These, th these are evolutionary steps, very large evolutionary steps in the development of law, which tells us that law is not static. Law is constantly evolving. And we see that in the development um, of Jewish law, uh, which is why uh, Jews are not biblical literalists. Um, and we have a constant evolution of law, but you could say, and you can argue, I think relatively convincingly, that, that much of our law is founded upon what we would call now nowadays Noahide law. Um, I wouldn't want to press the point too much because um, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the Noahide laws are very broad and they don't, uh, they don't really, um, uh, cover a modern society. However, however, if we're talking about the Noahide laws, there is a relatively large movement of people who consider themselves to be Noahides. And they are, they are people who study the Noahide laws, but ironically, they can't study the Noahide laws on their own, and so they use rabbinic commentary. But there are Noahide congregations. They are. And the laws, I think, one would make the distinction that, like the Ten Commandments, which are broad general statements um, without regulation, the Noahide laws are without regulation, and therefore... One is left, as with all laws, um, with certain anomalies um, and certain situations that require um, more definitive responses. And, and we're also getting close, I think, to the answer that, to the question that you asked at the beginning. What does it mean to be a decent person? And God is saying, through the Noahide laws, this is what Noah did. This is who Noah was. This is what it means to be a basic, decent person. Learn these Noahide laws and follow in the ways of Noah, which was fine until they rebelled again at the Tower of Babel. But that's a whole 
other problem. And that's a whole other issue because, um, you know, having different, uh, you know, having different, um, uh, or having a large community that builds a tower is not necessarily immoral so that the rabbis had to figure out exactly what was the immorality here. Um, but the, 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 uh, the Tower of Babel was seen as some kind of a, uh, uh, as a revolution against God. Um, and, um, uh, nothing in the Noahide laws said don't build a tower. Correct. Um, okay. And, and while we don't have really enough time to look in depth at the tower, one could make the statement that um, God had in this section of the Torah saved humanity and hoped that he, God, was um, bringing humanity together in a unified manner. And the Tower of Babel is again an indication of the differences that exist among human beings that are as natural as uh, disobeying the divine. And, and, and what you, you, I don't know uh, if your listeners know this, but there is this wonderful, wonderful commentary where the rabbis are basically asking the question, what was the big sin of the Tower of Babel? Okay. Because, I mean, building a tower to the heavens, you know, first of all, how high could it get? But, but, but the, and the rabbis knew this. So they say, you know, building a tower doesn't make them equal to God. But what, what, what was the, what was the, 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 the immorality? And here's what the rabbis said in a beautiful midrash. And the, and what the rabbis said was, when they were building that ziggurat, uh, that, that tower, okay, they were so focused on the tower that when somebody would bring a brick up they, and, and, and fall off of the tower, instead of saving the person, the people on building the tower would save the brick. They would save the brick because the brick became more important than the person that fell down. And so focusing on, on, on material things, focusing on uh, achievements. Rather than the essence of humanity. Right. It's that whole, it's that whole uh, uh, business expression, be careful who you step on on the way up because you're going to meet them on the way down. On the way down. My guest this morning has been Rabbi Sy Stanway of Temple Beth Miriam Elberon, New Jersey. He's helped us begin our yearly conversation into the story of Noah and reminded us um, with illusion of how many similarities there are um, in, in our world, which is in the midst of chaos. Um, and in the midst of uh, disintegration into uh, violence and corruption. Um, I want to thank him for sharing his insights with me and with you, the listeners. You can hear our broadcast on, on CHRI at 99.1 FM, or you can listen to it as a podcast on the chri.ca website, or download it as a podcast from iTunes. 
for Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, wishing you a good day and bidding you shalom. Shalom.